Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in my apartment, La Chateau T-Dot, on the southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina. Uh, I'm here in my apartment because, so far as I know, the studio has been quarantined, and it's not my fault this time. Uh, so y'all are going to get this. I'm recording this on Thursday. You're going to get it on Monday. You will notice that this past Monday, you did not have a podcast. And the reason why is that Mike has been grievously ill. So when we were in the studio last Sunday, um, so we're both white guys. You know, my hair is brown going towards black. His is brown going towards red. So he's a slightly lighter complexion than I am. Uh, he looked kind of like green, like a yellow green, like something was very clearly wrong with him. I didn't know what it was. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about joking when I found out he was sick, that it was my fault. But one, it wasn't me. I know that for sure. Uh, and I didn't want to be an asshole about it. But anyhow, long story short, Monday arrived. There was no podcast. People were wondering what was going on. Uh, so found out that he was not feeling well. Been doing this for more than a year. He's only had one episode off, and that was part of a pre-planned vacation, so it wasn't going to bust his chops. Uh, then we decided we are going to push back the release to Thursday. Thursday came and went, uh, and I reached out to him saying, hey, you know, are you alive? I'm actually a little worried now. And his roommate sent me a text uh, basically saying that they had taken him to urgent care. He has some kind of stomach bug of some sort. He's on antibiotics and a liquid-only diet, but otherwise he is okay. Uh, so he has promised me that he is going to edit the uh, audio file for last week. You will get it on Monday, and then you will get this one on Monday. So you're going to get two separate podcasts uh, on the same day, and they're going to be different topics because... Uh, last week, well, what, what you're going to get on Monday, which was last week's episode that should have been on the previous Monday, uh, is going to be all the criminal justice stuff. And then for this episode, this is going to be a What the Fisk Volume 6, W.T. Fisk. This is where I answer some of your questions uh, on those occasions where I don't have time to put together an outline of actual stuff. Uh, I've got a, a mutual friend between my girl. It's my girlfriend's friend, but like I know her, um, we're going to a birthday party for her tomorrow on Friday on Saturday. I'm throwing a party for my girlfriend. And then Sunday I've got to prepare for a hearing because Monday morning, uh, at 9am I have to travel. I have to be in Vance County by 9am, which is like an hour away from my office. So I'm, I'm not pleased, but I've got to prep for that. So instead what we do is I answer your questions sourced from Twitter, Facebook, direct messages, emails, all that stuff. I think all the questions today are from Twitter. Uh, but basically I go through those and take about 30 minutes to answer the questions that you have for me. But before we do that, if you have not already, please make sure to join the conversation online. We are on Twitter at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you'd like to leave us a comment and you don't want to use Twitter to do it, you can do that on our website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. Uh, and if you want to become one of our patrons, you can do that at patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. All right. So the first question comes from at Oregon person, and they ask, quote, what's your opinion on when slash if minors should be charged as adults? And there was a link to the tweet of a story about a school shooting in Kentucky where one of the responding officers found out that the uh, she was the mother of the gunman. Basically, the gunman was her son. And the, the most honest answer I can give you to that is I don't know. My thoughts on it are still uh, in flux, if you will. 
Um, I have had for most of my life a very uh, favorable disposition towards charging kids as adults when they commit major crimes. Always have. If you murder someone, you know, charge them as an adult. Don't do a big boy crime if you can't do big boy time, et cetera, et cetera. I bought into all that shit. Um, and then going through being a defense attorney, seeing some of my teen clients that, you know, they, they do dumb shit cause they're kids. Now, none of the folks I've defended have done anything like a homicide. Most of the time it's drugs and that sort of thing. Um, but the, the mental non-development, if you will, they haven't matured yet. It stays the same. I mean, whether you're busy smoking dope in high school or shooting somebody, the lack of forethought is still there uh, in equal measure, if you will. Um, so I, I know for sure, I do not think children should be charged as adults for any minor crime. And for me, a minor crime is any misdemeanor and really any low-level felony in North Carolina, anything like a G felony and below, which is like you know weed over a certain dollar amount, uh, theft up to a certain dollar amount, like stuff like that, put them through a juvenile system, let them be punished. Sometimes they go to juvie halls, sometimes they do community service, whatever else. But the important thing is that in the juvenile system, the records are not available to the general public so that you don't follow, you know, Google searches don't follow you as you're trying to get into college and mature and become a productive citizen. Um, I'm not as convinced on things like murder yet. I'm open to it. I mean, I, I know the science. I've read the studies about how the human brain is still developing and everything else, but it's just something just rubs me the wrong way to think that a teenager could go off and kill a shitload of people and be put in juvie and then released when they're 18. You know, that just, it just doesn't, it doesn't sit well with me. So I don't know what the answer is. You know, if, if we ended up tomorrow, if Congress decided to pass a law that, you know, they're not going to do that, you know, North Carolina's general assembly decided to pass a law that no kid would ever be charged as an adult for anything. Like I wouldn't be opposed to it. It wouldn't like, you know, it's not something I'm going to go picket the general assembly about, but at the same time, it just, it doesn't, I don't know. It just doesn't sit well with me to think that a kid could just go on a fucking shooting spree. And, you know, it, it, it's like, for example, the shooting we just had in, was it Texas? I think it was Texas. You know, the kid decided to kill a girl that he wanted who didn't want him back. And then a bunch of her other classmates, the notion that he could be put in juvie for a certain period of time and not be tried as an adult just does not compute. Like he needs to be tried as an adult in my mind, because that's a level of sociopathy that, you know, I'm not comfortable just relegating to the juvenile system. So I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer. But that's where I am. So if it's a minor crime, keep them in juvie. The public doesn't need to have the records tracking them for the rest of their life. They don't need to be doing life behind bars. But for major crimes, you know, murder, carjacking, uh, you know, forcible rape, that sort of thing, I'm fine putting them into the adult system right now. Uh, second question comes from at Juris underscore Dudens. He says, Fiscal question for the podcast that maybe you've talked about or not. What are some collateral legal issues that result from being the victim of a crime? And I'm not going to lie to you. That was a very good question to the point where I had to actually call in help to figure out the answer to it. So let's back up. Collateral consequences, I talk about them a lot. Uh, I mostly talk about them in the criminal context. And this is basically side effects of being prosecuted 
prior to you ever being convicted. So basically the side effect of an arrest. Uh, so for example, you have a mugshot that becomes a public record. What you're charged with becomes a public record. Your name gets splashed all over Google and everything else. And even if you're not convicted, even if the case is thrown out, that information still follows you and it still impacts you trying to apply to college, trying to apply for a job or whatever else. You know, I've told the story before about a student at North Carolina Central University who was charged with murder. And it was a case of mistaken identity. It wasn't him. The case was dismissed. But he was still on Google as the guy who killed somebody. And that stuff just doesn't go away. You know, part of North Carolina's changes to our expungement laws were triggered by that case. Um, so it's just something where it's a super common thing. You look, for example, we talked about the folks who tore down the Confederate monument. They were charged with felonies, even though there was no conceivable way the district attorney's office could ever prove those felonies. That's part of why the felonies were dismissed. They couldn't prove it. But the act of charging them with the felonies triggered collateral consequences with Google searches and everything else. So if you look their name in a background check, you see that they've been charged with felony rioting. Even though the case was dismissed, most people doing background checks don't go that far. So we mostly talk about them in the criminal context. And I'm going to talk now. We're going to switch it around. We're going to talk about the victims. But I got to do a couple caveats. One, I'm only answering this in the context of North Carolina. And the reason why is that I'm just not licensed to practice in any other state, and there may be some nuances in your states that I just don't know about. Uh, and I also want to give a thanks to a string of people who weighed in on this question, because like I said, I called in help. I reached out to my network of alumni to say, hey, give me your thoughts. Uh, so thank you to Meredith Watto, Charles Coons IV, Dina Griffin, Sarah Jessica Farber, Adam Robinson, Samantha Cox, Puyan Ordabadi, Sedestin Couch, Laura Parker, and Lindsay Knapp for all of their help. Uh, so... The list that we crowdsourced came up with. Uh, so for me, the main one I thought of was that you got to come to court. You know, if you're a victim and you report a crime, you're going to be subpoenaed to come to court repeatedly. Uh, if it's something that goes to trial, you're going to have to testify. And that's a slow process. You know, when I represent someone on the defense side, a typical case gets resolved in about four months, give or take. Uh, from the date of the first appearance, where they're advised of the crime they've been charged with and their right to have an, a lawyer, uh, usually 90 days after that is the defense attorney continuing the case to try and find both a good judge and a good DA at the same time. And then if you have that in the first 90 days, you call the case for trial or you plead it or whatever it is you're trying to do. Uh, and then after about the 120-day mark, it gets more difficult to get those continuances. You end up having to make a decision, plead, or try it one way or the other. So the victims have to keep being there. You know, that's the that's the from my end the main collateral consequence is that you got to show up. Um, I've also found out from my friends that I knew this. I just didn't think about it. A victim's name is also a public record. So it's on the charging documents. Now, usually that doesn't make its way into like the Google searches and stuff. So it's not quite as severe a collateral consequence as it is criminally, uh, but it's out there. You also, if you're undocumented, you could potentially become a target for immigration. So we've actually, we've talked a few stories in prior episodes about how people uh, don't report crimes because they're concerned about ICE and being deported and they don't want to report being you know stolen from. Uh, I'll give you a good example. So like the Hispanic community in Durham, very frequent target for theft, for robbery, 
because they don't have banks because they don't have social security numbers. So they keep large quantities of cash on themselves or in their homes. People will rob them blind and then say, go ahead and call police because what's going to happen is the police will deport you. So the police don't get called. Um, you also, if it's something that's a high profile case, you'll have to deal with media scrutiny, you know, newspapers, bloggers, reporters, television stations. Um, you also have potential prosecution yourself. You could be prosecuted if you were doing something wrong at the time. It's called collateral misconduct. Uh, so if you're smoking weed and then get into a fight and you call the police on the person who hits you, you could theoretically be prosecuted for smoking weed as well. Uh, and then the rest of it, we, it's not really a legal consequence, but it's the, the consequence you'd expect from being a crime victim. You know, you're going to have psychological trauma. If you were assaulted, you could have medical bills. If you were stolen from, you got property laws. Um, you know, the psychology of it could affect your work, your income, your ability to, to focus. Um, I'm actually amazed at how many robberies take place. When I had my last jury trial, during jury selection, we ask people about their involvement with law enforcement because it's a, it's a big deal. There are a lot of jurors that think the mere act of the defendant being charged means he's guilty. So you have to ask what their experience was with the system. And out of all of the jurors that we went through, probably around 30 in all, um, I would say at least 24, 25 of them had their home burgled at some point. Someone broke in and took their stuff. Um, so those are the main ones that we came up with. If you've got others, if you're a lawyer listening to this podcast and you have other collateral consequences of being a crime victim, uh, let me know. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll put them out on Twitter so we can append it to the answer. Uh, but those were the responses that we came up with. Uh, so the third question is related to the second question. This is from at Martha A. Daniels, who actually replied to at Jurisdudence's question. She said, related. When might it be wise for the victim of a crime to retain legal representation? Uh, so first, I'm going to segue off or separate off rather the first response from the other responses I'm going to give to that question. For anything domestic violence related, where you're trying to get a domestic violence restraining order, uh, the victim needs to have a lawyer. I mean, she really does because district attorneys can't give advice during that civil process. Um, and the defendants most of the time are going to have counsel because the civil, the way it's set up, it affects a lot of substantial rights. So most people that are on the receiving end of a DVPO claim, domestic violence protective order, uh, they're going to have an attorney. So if it's something that the victim wants, she needs to find counsel or he needs, because I mean, it can happen to guys too. I don't want to be sexist in my assumptions there, but the vast majority of the time it's women um, and they need to have a lawyer. So there are a lot of nonprofits that try to arrange pro bono counsel for victims. Um, there's the North Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Um, there's another one, its name I can't remember right now, but they will try and arrange attorneys to help victims that are trying to get protective orders. Uh, and then the other ones I was going to say are basically the instances where you have collateral consequences. So if you're involved in collateral misconduct, you're smoking that weed before you call in the assault, you want to have an attorney to talk with the DA to see if they can maybe negotiate an immunity deal where they agree not to prosecute you in exchange for your testimony. Uh, if there's going to be immigration consequences, you want to have an attorney to try and figure out how that's going to play out and whether or not ICE is going to be notified. Uh, if there's going to be media involvement, you can have an attorney to, to funnel 
media requests what you're going to say and basically to provide a layer of protection between you and the outside world. That's a that's a big role of what attorneys do. Uh, even in my standpoint as a defense attorney, my biggest job, it's not just keeping my client away from the government. It's keeping my client away from everyone else, too. If people want something uh, commented on, I'm going to comment on it because they can't use my statements against my client. They can use my client's statements against my client, but they can't use my statements against my client. Uh, and then another big one is that any time where the crime itself can also be the basis for a civil tort, something where you can sue somebody, uh, you want to have a lawyer. So, for example, the crime of assault, uh, almost every state has the civil tort of assault as well. So you can sue someone in civil court for your damages for them assaulting you, uh, the crime of battery, Um trying to think of other examples. Uh, I'm blanking right now. I'll have to have Mike cut this stuff out. Um, But yeah, so anytime where you could theoretically sue somebody as a result of the criminal act, in addition to the criminal prosecution, uh, you should probably have an attorney for that as well. Uh, So thank both of y'all for the questions. I've actually got another one from Jura students somewhere in this list because I was worried when we didn't get the episode out in time, I was worried we wouldn't have enough questions. So I pulled out a call on Twitter uh, and Juris underscore Dudents and Wolfpack underscore five uh, were both great with giving me plenty of questions. Uh, so the next one comes from at the Empire thirty eight. He says, "Is there any chance that the NC General Assembly will allow sports betting now that SCOTUS has opened it up to the states to decide?" So a little bit of news background. So earlier this week, the Supreme Court issued a six to three opinion that invalidated the 1992 Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act. Uh, They basically held that it was unconstitutional, violated the Tenth Amendment, and essentially now frees up state legislatures to decide if they want to regulate gambling as opposed to having it routed through the federal government. Think it's a good decision? Cool. Don't know what's going to happen with it. In the North Carolina context... It's one of those where I got to give you the lawyer answer. Uh, It depends. I'm not counting on it. And the reason why is this. So North Carolina has a long and bizarre history when it comes to gambling. You know, you look, for example, at the state lottery. The state lottery took years before it eventually got passed back in 2002-ish. I may be off on my timetable, but, you know, it's been around for about a decade now. And what you had was different coalitions on the conservative side. Uh, So you had religious people that thought gambling was a sin. You had people that thought it would be a way of expanding big government. Uh, You have what we call goo-goos, good government types that just think it's not an appropriate thing for the government to be doing. And then you also had groups on the left that were opposed to the lottery. You You had people that thought it was a tax on the poor, uh, people that thought it was an inappropriate way to fund schools, that you need to fund through schools through tax revenue. Uh, and basically you had this this cross-party alliance of these different conservative and liberal groups that kept the lottery away for years. I mean, the, the lottery bill came up repeatedly before it was finally adopted. So the politics are going to be similar to that with all of the other gaming laws as well. You know, I'll give you an example. So we had a bill on what's called charitable gambling. It was House Bill 511 
that basically allowed civic organizations like the Durham JCs that I used to be a part of uh, to have what were called casino nights. So basically we will teach people how to do blackjack, poker, whatever else. We'll come to your given event. We'll give you fake tokens that you can play. Uh, and it's a way to raise money for different civic organizations. A bunch of groups do them even though it's against the law. Technically, North Carolina law forbids that type of thing. Uh, So finally, just last year in 2017, a bill was passed that would legalize it. But the Democrat governor, Roy Cooper, vetoed it. And the General Assembly hasn't been able to override his veto, even though Republicans control a supermajority of both chambers. So this bipartisan bill passed, but not by enough votes to then override the governor's veto. So it's one of those things where it's gambling. So I would not expect a law to allow it. But pushing the other way, uh, basketball is huge in North Carolina. March Madness is crazy. You've got Carolina and Duke that have a bazillion championships between them. State's got another two itself. Uh, Davidson is hot. They're the ones that Steph Curry, uh, he was there for his undergrad spot. Um, Basketball is a big deal. And betting pools for March Madness are a big deal. So if it's going to happen, I'd imagine that would be the impulse for it. Uh, But we'll see. Like I said, I'm not counting on it, uh, but you never know. We'll see what happens. Uh, Next question is from Wolfpack underscore five. He says, Greg, cannot recall if you ever weighed in on this topic. My apologies if you have and I missed it. Would be curious to know your thoughts on live video at SCOTUS. And as part of this, he's got a tweet attached from Eric Segal, uh, who's responding to someone else. And that tweet says, quote, young folks want to see, not hear. Body language is very important. Lawyers can learn from oral arguments. They can see. Citizens will gather around live to watch big case announcements. Students will benefit, not to mention the presumption of open government. What are they trying to hide? Uh, So like right now, the Supreme Court records oral arguments live. Uh, makes them available the same day in a very fancy format and everything else. Uh, There is no video. Video is not allowed inside the Supreme Court. It just doesn't happen. And it's been talked about off and on over the years whether or not we should start having video of oral arguments and case announcements. Um, Eh. I mean, that's essentially my response. Eh. I'm not sold on it. And the reason why is that it, it... creates a tendency to pander to the cameras, not to the issues, which the Supreme Court is making law that becomes binding on all the states and similarly situated cases. Um, It's just that prospect terrifies me. And I would say as an example, look at how Senate confirmation hearings of judges have turned out. You know, it's a shit show. Uh, For example, every senator all the time asks about whether or not Brown v. Board of Education was properly decided or some variant of that question. Now, separate from that, there's a set of canons of judicial ethics, one of which prevents judicial nominees from answering questions about issues that could theoretically come before their court. And the matter of school segregation and what is allowed to desegregate the schools is still very much a hot topic. So most nominees can't answer that question ethically while still sticking with the canons. But you'll notice it's still get asked because what they're doing is they're trying to get a soundbite that they can use against the nominees later. You contrast that type of grandstanding with the written questions that senators submit to nominees that is completely separate and apart from the uh, live hearings. 
And you don't see any of that shit. You see actual normal questions that are totally appropriate to ask. Um, and my, I guess my concern is given how, you know, it didn't happen immediately. Senate confirmation hearings were videoed for a bit before they turned into a shit show. Uh, I'm concerned that Supreme court oral arguments will turn into a shit show eventually as well. So it's similar to the thing about charging kids as adults. If the Supreme court decided tomorrow they're going to allow video, I'm not going to mind. I'm not going to like pick at the Supreme court to say absolutely no video, uh, but I'm not pressed that they don't have it. The audio is fine for me for now. Uh, Wolfpack 5 also asks, he's got some of the lighthearted questions coming up now. I'm not doing the serious stuff anymore. Uh, I In the earlier episode a couple weeks back, as part of our one-year anniversary, I shared with you all some statistics. And he asked, I'm curious, do you store, track, analyze the podcast data yourself, or do you just receive the data as an output from somewhere else? Uh, and the answer is, I don't, I don't do it on my own. Fuck that. Um, so we get data from two different third parties. So most of it comes from Blueberry, who is our media host, and they have phenomenal, uh, data tracking stuff. So they track the total downloads, the number of unique IPs, which is how I roughly figure out how many subscribers we have, uh, the country of origin for those IP addresses. So occasionally you'll see me tweet maps of where we have different listeners, uh, how folks listen to us. So what, they're using, whether it's Apple or Android or whatever else, all of that stuff. So Blueberry gives us all of that. It's very easy to use. It's very fancy. And then separate from that, Apple has a system called Podcast Connect that provides me anonymized minute by minute listening data for each episode. So I can see, you know, at the 25 minute mark, I had 500 listeners at the 27 minute mark. We dropped down to 200 uh, like I can see who decides they get bored listening to the podcast at a particular point in time. Um, and, and it's just very slick. It's very fancy. So the challenge though, is that Apple only tracks the number of people that are basically on the latest version of the podcast app, which only runs on the latest version of iOS. Uh, so I can't see everybody. And if there's not enough listeners to any given episode, I can't see anything because all the data is anonymized. They don't want me to be able to track any particular user, but it's still pretty cool for, you know, my assumption is that the people listening via Apple have similar listening habits as the people listening via Android and everything else. So the data I do get is super useful, but I don't mess with any of that stuff on my own because that just, it's, it's beyond my pay grade at this point. I have forgotten enough computer science stuff that I couldn't do it. Uh, next question is another one from Jurisdudence. He says, what are the different North Carolina regional accents? I just spoke with a guy from Marshville who sounded completely different than folks from Greenville or North Topsail Beach. So I'm going to punt on this question. I'm going to skip it because uh, my alma mater, North Carolina State University, has a lot of people that have been doing super in-depth research on this. And two of them have the definitive answer. As part of a new book, it's called Talking Tar Heel that just came out back in 2014. And I'm going to read you some quotes uh, from an NC State press release on the book. It's not, well, I guess it's not really a press release. It's more of a story that they put on the website, but it's still press release-ish. Uh, from that page, it says, quote, We've all had the experience of accidentally mispronouncing the name of a town or a landmark. That's me. It happens every time on this podcast. Uh, only to be corrected by a local. How do these counterintuitive pronunciations get started? For that matter, how do regional accents and dialects come about in the first place? How many accents and dialects are there? Who uses them and why? 
These are some of the questions pursued by NC State sociolinguists Walt Wolfram and Jeffrey Reeser, researchers with the North Carolina Language and Life Project and co-authors of the brand new book, Talkin' Tar Heel, How Our Voices Tell the Story of North Carolina. Wolfram and Reeser's book draws on more than 20 years of research, including more than 3,000 recorded interviews from all over North Carolina to present the first in-depth study of an entire state's languages and dialects. Uh, it goes further on, and it says, quote, North Carolina can now be divided into five major dialect zones, the Outer Banks, the Coastal Plain, which would include Greenville, uh, the North Carolina Piedmont, the Virginia Piedmont, which is where basically Virginia's Piedmont area bleeds over across the state line, uh, and the Appalachian area, each with its own distinctive features. On the Outer Banks, Hoy Toyd comes twice a day. In the coastal plain, fear loses its final R, so it sounds like fear. And in the Appalachian region, a red squirrel is a boomer. Uh, also note, so separate from those guys, uh, there's a guy named Joshua Katz that did his graduate work at State, and he created linguistic heat maps. So he had this survey that you could take uh, all over the country, and based on your responses, it could figure out where you were raised. And it, it, it's so freaky accurate because I took it, um, and it gives you five possibilities for where you grew up. And my five, like number one was Richmond, number two was Norfolk, uh, both in Virginia. The third was like Elizabeth City, North Carolina, which is right across the border. Like it's, it's freaky accurate. Um, now he's of course graduated and moved on. His survey no longer works. The maps aren't available, but if you Google his name, Joshua Katz, uh, you can find stories from Bloomberg, New York times, and a few others that took screenshots of the heat maps when he was actually there. Uh, and it's pretty fascinating stuff. So thank you for that question. Question eight comes from at camera girl with two R's and no I. It says, honest question, Greg, how do you stay sane with all the awful things you see as an attorney with the way things are now? How do you do it? I cannot even imagine living a day in your shoes. However you do it, it's pretty clear we're better off for it. Thank you. Um, that's thank you is me thanking you. And that was not part of the tweet. So a, a big part of my sanity is ranting a lot. So, of course, you all follow me on Twitter. You see me talking throughout the day. I rant on Facebook. I now rant every Monday on this podcast. Uh, and it's that's cathartic. Like that helps me get it off my chest. I can rage a little bit and call it a day. Uh, but then I also do a bunch of other stuff that is not involved with the general fuckery that goes on around me. So I do a lot of volunteer work. At least I try to when I'm not busy with the office. Um, I do a lot of exercise. You know, I've had problems with my weight for a very long time because I like to eat. Uh, gaining weight is a lot more fun than losing it. So for my birthday, when my girlfriend asked me what I wanted, I told her to get me an exercise bike. And I've been using that every day. I've biked like 360 something miles since I've got it. And I've only had it for a month and a half. Um, so I, I do exercise every day trying to lose weight, but that also is a stress reliever. Um, and I play a lot of video games during downtime, you know, so aside from working and volunteering and exercising, uh, and podcasting, I will play a lot of video games to just kind of have mindless entertainment. So it's actually not as difficult to stay sane as you could imagine with all the crazy shit going on. 
because uh, I just find ways to distract myself. So thank you for that question. And then replying to that, uh, Sam gave me this, I think it's his third question out of the nine. So Sam, you've got 33% of the questions. Thank you. Uh, he asked me, what games do I tend to play? And that is a deceptively complex question uh, because it depends on what kind of system I'm on. So like I grew up in, I'm part of the Oregon Trail generation is what they called us. Basically, we grew up without fancy tech stuff, uh, the tech stuff came around in high school and then got ubiquitous by the time we were in college and in the workforce. So my very first video game system was the Atari 2600. And for that, you had a joystick and one button, or they had a, uh, a paddle swivel thing with one button. And then years later, eventually we got to the Nintendo, which had two buttons and then two more buttons in the middle, select and start, and then a directional pad. Uh, that transmorphed into the Super Nintendo control, which had four buttons, and then start and select, and then two buttons at the top for where your index fingers would be, and the directional pad. Uh, and then the PlayStation added two more buttons at the top, uh, so you ended up now with, what's that, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You had ten pressable buttons and the direction pad. And then later on, they added little thumb joysticks. Like So eventually, the console controllers got so insane with the number and organization of the buttons uh, that I stopped playing console games. Like I loved console games growing up, had the Atari, uh, had the Nintendo. I still have my Super Nintendo is actually in my uh, my storage shed right now. Like it's still there. It still works. Uh, I don't use it because now, of course, technology has advanced enough that I can just run an emulator on my laptop. Um, but on those console games... I did a lot of turn-based stuff because my reaction time is not the best. Uh, so every now and then I'll fire up Dungeons & Dragons games. Uh, SSI did a gold box series way back in the 80s and 90s that was actually very good given the technology available at the time. So I'll still play that every now and again. Uh, the Final Fantasy series, Dragon Warrior. Uh, there's a game called Nectaris. Uh, it used to be called Military Madness, I think was the original. It was available on Sega CD. Uh, but it's basically, it's kind of like Risk, but more futuristic type stuff. So that's the type of stuff I enjoy. Um, in terms of bulk of my time now, it has been spent on games on my iPhone. And those tend to be a blend of like totally nerd things. So let, let me pull out my phone right now. Uh, so I have out of the app, the games that I've got, is, is that the only ones? Let me just make sure I don't miss any. So in my games folder, I have Skippo, which is a card game. Uh, Quiz Up, which is trivia. Trivia Crack, which is also trivia. Uh, word Bubbles, which is trying to find words in a group. Uh, seven Words, where it's basically similar to like crossword puzzle-ish. Uh, Elevate, which is brain games. HQ Trivia, you're noticing a trivia theme here. Uh, Line, which is actually not a video game, it's a messaging app. Marvel Contest of Champions, which I'm going to come back to momentarily. Uh, 16 Squares, which is a math game. Logic Grid, which is like logic problems. It's a, it's not the best UI, but it's super addictive. Uh, Dots, which is another game. Uh, the Mobile Playmaker for Buzz Time, because I go to Buffalo Wild Wings and play trivia stuff. Uh, Pokemon Go, which I used to play addictively. I don't really much anymore. Uh, Boggle and Mario Run. Uh, so I played all of those, but then ended up, I got super addicted to Marvel Contest of Champions. Like I started playing that back in, I want to say like August or September. Um, and I, I've mentioned in several podcasts that I was a comic books, total geek growing up. I love all of the movies that have come out. 
Uh, and the game is just so freaking addictive. It's crazy. Uh, when I'm done with this podcast, I'm going to go play a couple rounds of that in Arena. Uh, so if any of you are listening and you happen to play Marvel Contest of Champions, feel free to add me as a friend. Uh, my name is at Legal Eagle T. Uh, so it looks like Legal Eaglet, but it's Legal Eagle T. Uh, feel free to add me because I'm on that thing all the damn time. Uh, so, folks, that is the nine questions that I have for What the Fisk Volume 6. That is going to do it for this particular episode. We will have a regular episode next Monday. It's going to be another long one because I've got a bazillion stories linked on my notepad file to add in eventually. Uh, I just don't have the time to do it this week. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your questions. Uh, Sam and Jur students both particular for y'all giving me extra questions to work with because otherwise I'd only have like five. Uh, so thank you all so much. And on behalf of myself, Mike, the sound guy who is still recovering, uh, thank you so much for listening. And I'll talk to you next Monday. Take care. <laughs>